Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 26th of May for the listening week that begins the 27th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening this week with tributes to Tina Turner. First comes from The Guardian. Tina Turner, legendary rock and roll singer, dies aged 83. This was written by Laura Snapes, posted the 24th. Tina Turner, the pioneering rock and roll star who became a pop behemoth in the 1980s, has died aged 83 after a long illness. She had suffered ill health in recent years, being diagnosed with intestinal cancer in 2016 and having a kidney transplant in 2017. Turner affirmed and amplified black women's formative stake in rock and roll, defining that era of music to the extent that Mick Jagger admitted to taking inspiration from her high-kicking, energetic live performances for his stage persona. After two decades of working with her abusive husband, Ike Turner, she struck out alone and, after a few false starts, became one of the defining pop icons of the 1980s with the album Private Dancer. Her life was chronicled in three memoirs, a biopic, a jukebox musical, and in, pardon me, in 2021, the acclaimed documentary film, Tina. In a statement on Wednesday night, her publicist Bernard Doherty said, Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll, has died peacefully today at the age of 83 after a long illness in her home in Kusnak near Zurich, Switzerland. With her, the world loses a music legend and a role model. In 2018, scholar Daphne A. Brooks wrote for The Guardian, Turner's musical character has always been a charged combination of mystery as well as light, melancholy mixed with a ferocious vitality that often flirted with danger. Turner was born Anna May Bullock on 26th November 1939 and raised in Nutbush, Tennessee. Pardon me, that's Nutbush, I'm sure. Tennessee where she recalled picking cotton with her family as a child. She sang in the town's tiny church choir. Pardon me, that says, in the tiny town's church choir. And as a teenager, talked, or rather sang, her way into Ike's band in St. Louis. He had declined her request to join until he heard her seize the microphone during a Kings of Rhythm performance, for a rendition of B.B. King's You Know I Love You. After her vocal talents became apparent, Ike gave her the name Tina Turner and trademarked it in case she left him and he wanted to replace her in its his pardon me, act. He quickly became abusive, 
When Turner tried to leave the group early on, after having gotten a sense of his mercurial character, he hit her with a wooden shoe stretcher. My relationship with Ike was doomed the day he figured out I was going to be his moneymaker, Turner wrote in her 2018 autobiography, My Love Story. He needed to control me, economically and psychologically, so I could never leave him. She made her recorded debut under the name with the Ike and Tina pardon me. She made her recorded debut under the name with the Ike and Tina Turner single A Fool in Love in July 1960, which broke the US top 30 and started a run of respectable chart successes. But it was their live performances that made them a sensation. Ike toured the Ike and Tina Turner review aggressively on the Chitlin circuit, including in front of desegregated audiences. Such was their commercial power. In 1964, they signed to Warner Brothers imprint Loma Records, which released their first album to chart live, The Ike and Tina Turner Show. In the second half of the 1960s, the duo were courted by many of rock's biggest names, Phil Spector produced the 1966 single River Deep, Mountain High. They supported the Rolling Stones in the UK and later the US, and stars including David Bowie, Sly Stone, Cher, Elvis Presley, and Elton John came to their Las Vegas residency. They were a chart-making, Grammy-winning force in the 1970s, a run that came to an end when Turner left Ike who had been consistently violent and unfaithful. She left him in 1976. Her last single with Ike was Baby, Get It On, though the song made it onto her second solo album too, Acid Queen, a reference to the character she played in the 1975 film adaptation of Who's Rock Opera Tommy. In the divorce, finalized in 1978, Turner came away with just two cars and the rights to her stage name. Ike fought a little bit because he knew what I would do with it, she said in the documentary, Tina. Turner, who had already released two solo records, continued pursuing a solo career, though it would take until she released her fifth album, 1984's Private Dancer, for her to supplant the old image of the shimmying rock and roller and escape premature relegation to the oldies circuit with one of a powerful, mullet-sporting, leather-clad pop icon. In the documentary, Tina, she described Private Dancer as her debut. I don't consider it a comeback, she said. Tina had never arrived. Turner credited Buddhism, and particularly the practice of chanting, with positively affecting her life in the 1980s. Outside music, she starred in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, opposite Mel Gibson in 1985. She published her first memoir, the global bestseller, I, Tina, in 1986, which was later adapted to the into the 1993 film What's Love Got to Do With It, starring Angela Bassett as Turner. In 1995, she sang the theme tune to the James Bond film, Golden Eye. Turner announced her retirement in 2000, a year after releasing her final solo album, 
though she would return to the stage in 2008, performing at the Grammy Awards with Beyoncé, and for a final tour to mark 50 years of her career. That was conclusively the end. I was just kind, pardon me, she says, I was just tired of singing and making everybody happy. She told the New York Times in 2019, that's all I'd ever done in my life. Turner collaborated on the musical Tina with Felita Lloyd, which premiered in 2018 and won Laurence Olivier and Tony Awards for its respective West End and Broadway runs. This musical is not about my stardom, Turner said of the publication, or pardon me, of the production. It is about the journey I took to get there. Each night I want audiences to take away from the theater that you can turn poison into medicine. Turner often said she did not relate to the invincible persona that others put on her. I don't necessarily want to be a strong person, she told the New York Times. I had a terrible life. I just kept going. You just keep going and you hope that something will come. In 2020, a remix of her 1984 hit, What's Love Got to Do With It?, by the Norwegian producer Kaigo, made Turner the first artist to have a UK top 40 hit in seven consecutive decades. In 2021, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist, 30 years after Ike and Tina Turner's induction. Turner is survived by her second husband, German music executive Erwin Bach. They married in July 2013, after 27 years together, and lived in Switzerland. In 2013, Tina renounced her U.S. citizenship to become a Swiss citizen. Her first child, Craig Raymond Turner, died in July 2018. Last year, Turner said that following her other son Ronnie's death at the age of 62, that he left the world far too early. She is survived by two of Ike Turner's sons, Ike Turner Jr. and Michael Turner, whom she adopted. In 2020, Turner told The Guardian that despite having some serious health problems, the last 10 years of her life had embodied her ideal vision of happiness. True and lasting happiness comes from having an unshakable, hopeful spirit that can shine no matter what, she said. That's what I've achieved, and it is my greatest wish to help others become truly happy as well. And a little more detail comes from the Huff Post posting from May 26th, written by Marco Margaritoff. Pardon me, that's Margaritoff. Forgive my mispronunciation. Tina Turner's cause of death revealed. The cause of death for Tina Turner, who died Wednesday at 83, has been confirmed. Representatives for the Queen of Rock and Roll told the Daily Mail that Tina Turner died from natural causes. The singer had written about her medical struggles, including cancer, high blood pressure, and a kidney transplant, and her publicist previously said she died after a long but unspecified illness. Turner wrote in March, My kidneys are victims of my not realizing that my high blood pressure should have been treated with conventional medicine. I have put myself in great danger by refusing to face the reality that I need daily, lifelong therapy with medication. 
For far too long I believed that my body was an untouchable and indestructible bastion, she continued. Turner was diagnosed with intestinal cancer in 2016, which she discussed in her memoir, My Love Story. While doctors caught the disease early and removed her malignant tumors, surgery delayed her kidney transplant for a year. Turner died peacefully at her home in Kushnak, near Zurich. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of Tina Turner, read a statement on Instagram. With her music and her boundless passion for life, she enchanted millions of fans around the world and inspired the stars of tomorrow. Turner's death came five months after her son Ronnie died and nearly five years after the death of Craig, her eldest. Turner married her, quote, true love, music executive Erwin Bach, in 2013, he donated his kidney to Turner in 2017. I've been on such a wild roller coaster ride during the four years since my wedding that even I have difficulty keeping my medical catastrophes straight, Turner wrote in her memoir. High blood pressure, stroke, intestinal cancer. No, no, wrong order. Turner previously said that she wasn't scared of death but was rather curious and excited to discover what lies beyond. A dynamic force in music whose songs become anthems, pardon me, that's became anthems dedicated to resilience, the Grammy-winning singer left an undeniable mark. She was remembered on social media by the likes of former President Barack Obama, Elton John, and Mick Jagger. Turning next to TheRoot.com for their take on some recent news. First, from their education department, the Georgia school district that removed books with black and LGBTQ characters could be in trouble. Removing black books may have created, quote, a hostile environment for students, according to the education department. This is written by Candace McDuffie, posted on the 22nd. On Friday, May 19th, the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights publicly released its findings in a letter concluding an investigation into Forsyth County Schools. In 2022, the Georgia District made the decision to remove almost a dozen books in response to parent complaints, and these books featured black and LGBTQ characters. The federal government believes the removal of these books may have led to a hostile environment and could have violated students' civil rights. The district has agreed to provide, quote, supportive measures to students who were affected by the book's removals. In a statement Monday, Forsyth School spokesperson Jennifer Caraciolo explained that the district's implementation of the department's recommendations will further our mission to provide an unparalleled education for all to succeed. Caraciolo also said that the district was first contacted by the Education Department in March. The complaint stated that the January 2022 removal of books led to a racially and sexually hostile environment for students. However, who filed the complaint and the exact date it was filed remain unknown. 
The department's investigation involved a thorough evaluation of school documents, interviews with school personnel, and an examination of public board meeting records. The findings explain that, quote, communications at board meetings conveyed the impression that books were being screened to exclude diverse authors and characters, including people who are LGBTQ and authors who are not white. The district is now required to conduct a school climate survey as well as explain to all middle and high school students why the books were removed in the first place. The statement must cite the fact that books were not eliminated due to the sex, gender, race, or sexual orientation of their characters. It also must mention, quote, an acknowledgment that the environment surrounding removal of books may have impacted students. In addition, the statement will inform students how to file harassment and discrimination complaints under federal law. The district will also agree to take appropriate action in dealing with these issues. The statement is due for submission to the Education Department on July 31st. And this one was posted previous to the other one and written by Angela Johnson. It says it was updated April 30th. Book bans are increasing and writers of color are the target. According to new data by the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom, 2022 was a record year for censorship. At The Root, we've previously reported on the growing trend of book bans and how the act seems to be laser-focused on works by writers of color. You can check out our list of banned and challenged books written by black authors here. I will glance at that list after finishing this article. But if you haven't been keeping up with what's going on, you should know that the problem is only getting worse. In honor of National Library Week, the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom just released some disturbing data around conservatives' ongoing efforts to ban books from libraries and schools around the country. According to their report, 2022 saw the highest number of appeals to ban books in the 20 years they've been keeping track. And it should come as no surprise that most of the books in the conservatives' crosshairs were written by writers of color or those who identify as LGBTQ. At the top of the ALA's list of 13 most challenged books of 2022 are frequent targets the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, a fact that is not lost on the American Library Association. By releasing the list of top ten most challenged books each year, ALA recognizes all of the brave authors whose work challenges readers with stories that disrupt the status quo and offer fresh perspectives on tough issues said ALA President Lessa Kanani Opua, Pelayo Lozada, pardon me, that's a long name. I'll try it again. Lessa Kanani Opua, Pelayo Lozada, in a statement. When she went on, forgive me, I'm not sure if that's she or not, but the list also illustrates how frequently stories by or about LGBTQ plus persons, people of color, 
and lived experiences are being targeted by censors. Closing our eyes to the reality portrayed in these stories will not make life's challenges disappear. Books give us courage and help us understand each other. End quote. But while conservatives are ramping up their efforts to take books off shelves, the ALA's Office of Intellectual Freedom provides support for libraries facing censorship, including workshops and programs around the First Amendment. As Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom, told NBC News, everyone is entitled to find books that reflect their interests, their experiences, their backgrounds, their identities on the shelves of a publicly funded library that is there to serve everyone. So as for that list, it's a slideshow here, and I will just click through a few of these so you have an idea. Stamped is on the list. Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, written by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. This Is Your Time by Ruby Bridges. Well, certainly not. That was incorrectly read. Pardon me. The title of the book is Ruby Bridges, This Is Your Time, and they're not giving me an author here. Maybe she is the author. Well, this is unclear. Forgive me. Continuing. Yes, indeed, she is definitely the author of that book, pardon me. And now we're going forward. Another one with Jason Reynolds as one of the authors. All American Boys, a New York Times bestseller. Fallen Angels written by Walter Dean Myers. One more. On the list of banned books. A Lesson Before Dying by Ernest J. Gaines. The reason for this one states, was the target of bans and challenges around the country on the basis of sexually explicit content and profanity. Fallen Angels faced several challenges for its use of profanity and depiction of violence. All-American Boys was the target of a challenge by the Fraternal Order of Police in South Carolina, Charleston County. And they accused the book of encouraging mistrust of the police. A little bit more on that one. When a black boy is mistaken for a shoplifter... It leaves a community bitterly divided. Two teens, one black and one white, are struggling to deal with the consequences. In the Ruby Bridges book, This Is Your Time, if there's one thing conservatives don't like, it's kids learning about racial injustice, it says here. And that's why This Is Your Time made a list of books Texas lawmakers targeted for investigation in 2021. At age six, Ruby Bridges made history as the first black child to integrate an all-white public elementary school in New Orleans. In this book, she recalls her experience for young readers and leaves them with a message of hope. Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart, for those who might not know this book, 
centers around the reality of life in Nigeria during the turn of the 20th century and the impact of colonization by the British. In 2012, it was added to the list of books challenged by Texas schools because of the way it depicts the consequences of colonialism. Since its publication, it sold 20 million copies and has been translated into 57 languages. Former President Barack Obama called it a true classic of world literature. Next article. This was posted on the 25th, written by Candace McDuffie. Biden will announce C.Q. Brown as nominee for Joint Chiefs of Chair. This would make Brown the first black Joint Chiefs Chair since Colin Powell. On Thursday, President Joe Biden is scheduled to announce that he has selected General C.Q. Brown, the first black person to lead a branch of the military and the Air Force's premier officer, as his next Joint Chiefs Chair, The news comes directly from a senior administration official. During the selection process, President Biden prioritized finding a successor who can carry on that work and provide strong, steady leadership and wise counsel, the official explained. In General Brown, the president knows he will likewise benefit from a wealth of military experience shaped in both peacetime and war. If the information is true, this would make Brown the first black Joint Chiefs chair in three decades. The last black person to hold the position is the late Colin Powell, and that was during the George H.W. Bush administration. In addition, it would also be the first time in history of America that the Pentagon's top military and civilian positions are both occupied by black people. Brown would replace Army General Mark Milley, since his term as Joint Chiefs Chair, which lasted four years, concludes this fall. The official also shared that Biden will make the announcement during an event in the White House Rose Garden at 1.45 p.m. Brown has a difficult job ahead of him as chair, as he would become chief military advisor during the fight between Ukraine and Russia. In addition, Brown would also need to protect the country from China and its growing threats, as well as possible actions from North Korea and Iran. In 2020, the unanimous Senate voted to confirm Brown to be Air Force Chief of Staff. However, this time around, he will join around 200 other senior Pentagon nominees. Brown would also be making history in other ways. He would also become the first Air Force officer to act as Joint Chiefs Chair since retired General Richard Myers who held the job until 2005. And just to confirm that, from PBS News, yes, he did nominate Brown. A little bit from that article. Brown, 60, has commanded the nation's air power at all levels. Born in San Antonio, he is from a family of Army soldiers. His grandfather led a segregated Army unit in World War II, and his father was an artillery officer and a Vietnam War veteran. Brown grew up on several military bases, which helped instill in him a sense of mission. His nomination caps a four-decade military career that began with his commission as a distinguished ROTC graduate from Texas Tech University in 1984. He was widely viewed within military circles as the front-runner for the chairmanship, 
with the right commands, and a track record of driving institutional change. Attributes seen as needed to push the Pentagon onto a more modern footing to meet China's rise. For the past two years, Brown has pressed accelerate change or lose within the Air Force. That campaign very much has China in mind, pushing the service to shed legacy warplanes and speed its efforts to counter hypersonics, drones, and space weapons. Where the military's lingering Cold War era inventory does not match up. In person, Brown is private, thoughtful, and deliberate. He is seen as a contrast to Milley, who has remained outspoken throughout his tenure, offer, pardon me, often to the ire of former President Donald Trump and Republican lawmakers. He's not prone to blurt out something without some serious thought in his own mind. Some serious kind of balancing of the opportunities or options," said retired Air Force Chief of Staff General Michael Mosley of Brown. Brown has more than three thousand flying hours and repeat assignments to the Air Force Weapons School. In June of 2020, Brown was just a week from being confirmed by the Senate to serve as Chief of Staff of the Air Force. When he felt the need to speak out on George Floyd's murder, it was risky and an opportune time for the general to draw public attention and pull back the curtain on his private thoughts. But he did so anyway, after discussions with his wife and sons about the murder, which convinced him he needed to say something. In a June 2020 video message to the service titled "Here's What I'm Thinking About," Brown described how he had pressured himself. To perform error-free as a pilot and officer his whole life, but still faced bias, he said he'd been questioned about his credentials even when he wore the same flight suit and wings as every other pilot. It's been 30 years since Powell became the first black chairman, serving from 1989 to 1993. But while African Americans make up 17.2 percent. Of the 1.3 million active duty service members, only nine percent of officers are black. I'm thinking about my mentors and how I rarely had a mentor that looked like me," said Brown in that video. "I'm thinking about how my nomination provides some hope, but also comes with a heavy burden. I can't fix centuries of racism in our country." Nor can I fix decades of discrimination that may have impacted members of our air force. I'm thinking about how I can make improvements personally, professionally, and institutionally, so all airmen could excel. His decision to speak out did not cost him. His Senate confirmation vote was 98 to zero. But like the brief moment. In Aspen, the personal video message was a rarity. After confirmation, he lowered his public profile again and got to work. Next, written by Candace McDuffie, published on the twenty-fifth, will Oprah replace Dianne Feinstein in the Senate? Winfrey, the billionaire talk show mogul, her name has been mentioned to follow Feinstein. Oprah Winfrey is apparently being considered as Dianne Feinstein's replacement. Feinstein, Feinstein, pardon me, the 89-year-old California senator and the oldest member of Congress, 
may choose to retire soon. Last week, Feinstein's office shared that she was suffering health complications following a case of shingles. Feinstein is currently the longest-serving Democrat in the Senate. Her spokesperson confirmed to CNN that she experienced Ramsey-Hunt syndrome and encephalitis as part of the shingles diagnosis. While the encephalitis resolved itself shortly after she was released from the hospital in March, she continues to have complications from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, they said. Feinstein went back to the Senate earlier this month on May 10th after her illness to cast her vote. There have been calls for her to resign due to health issues as well as her questionable cognitive abilities, which could lead Feinstein to retire before her term ends in 2025. Governor Gavin Newsom has the power to name a successor in case that happens. During his 2021 anti-recall campaign, Newsom promised to appoint a black woman in case a vacancy comes up. According to those in, quote, California circles, Oprah is being considered for the role of caretaker. Winfrey has stated publicly that she has considered running for president, but didn't seize the opportunity in 2020. The 2024 Senate campaign has begun if Feinstein chooses to finish out her term. Her staff say she is following doctor's orders and is adhering to a lighter schedule as she recovers from the aftermath of shingles, which includes balance and vision problems. Feinstein has also been using a wheelchair to get to committee meetings as well as to her office. Next, I'd like to turn to an article I've archived from the Wall Street Journal, May 6th edition, a review of a book on Isaac Murphy, written by Catherine C. Mooney, The Race of His Life. This article is written by Max Watman. Possibly that's Watman. Late in his career, esteemed turf writer John Hervey mused over the greatest horses he'd seen, his life bridged the 19th and 20th centuries, and he had watched Man o' War run, which seems like a natural choice for the top spot. But he reached back further and claimed that the greatest of all was a horse called Salvatore. The horse was certainly impressive. Salvatore had the, held the speed record for a mile for decades. He won 16 of his 19 starts. Parentheses. Those early losses were his first trips to the gate. It seems as if it took him a second to figure racing out. In the summer of 1890, 18 horses were entered in the Monmouth Cup, but not one of them showed up to race against him. It must have been something to see Salvatore jog around the track. An easy bit of work for the $1,800 prize. The racing life of a jockey is far from calm, but I imagine that this summer day, up in the irons on a champion horse with no chance of losing, must have been a gorgeous respite for Isaac Murphy, a horseman's horseman. The jockey raced with gentle confidence. He was renowned for his patience, often bringing his mounts under the wire after letting them settle in near the back of the pack. Like Salvatore, he was the best there was, and 1890 was his time, his peak. In all, he won the Kentucky Derby three times, 
and went to the post at the Chicago tracks, out in California, and on the New York circuit. It's hardly a spoiler to tell you the good times didn't last. The denouement is right there in the title of Catherine C. Mooney's Isaac Murphy, The Rise and Fall of a Black Jockey. Ms. Mooney, a professor at Florida State University, studies the intersection of race, class, and sport. Early on, she quotes Hamilton Busby, writing in Harper's in July of 1870, Racing is the most expensive amusement in the world, he wrote. It is a royal sport, beyond the reach of modest incomes, and racing is adopted as a pastime by those who have riches and leisure and who aspire to lead where the vulgar crowds cannot follow. The American promise is that if you happen to corner the right market, extract the right commodity, or develop the right skill, you might find yourself rising out of that vulgar crowd. The copper barons and the stock market hustlers who made up American racing royalty in the late 19th century were lucky and newly wealthy, and Ms. Mooney hints at the ways racing offered conspicuity and entree. Or let me correct myself again. Miss Mooney hints at the ways racing offered conspicuity and entree. They spent fortunes showing off. Isaac Murphy's skill in the saddle took him to the top of the sport and made him a fortune. Although the estimates widely vary, Murphy was making millions of dollars a year in today's money. But a black man who worked his way to the top engaged in a ba- pardon me, balancing act. He was either special but subordinate, or he was safely inferior, Miss Mooney writes, forced, in other words, to continue to play by the rules established during slavery. Fidelity and subordination were expressed in manners that were learned from white mentors. Murphy's talent was often dismissed as innate. To tolerate him, indeed to root for him, white fans went through mental gymnastics, Murphy's success could, in the end, be put down to raw ability that owed nothing to skill or thought. He happened to benefit from one of the immutable characteristics of a biological race, says one. Further, the author suggests, this meant that instead of threatening the status quo, he enforced it by, quote, proving that race was a valid basis for taxonomy. The newspaper pardon me, for newspaper founder and self-described Afro-American agitator T. Thomas Fortune, Murphy represented the opposite. Fortune had an expensive view of activism, writes Ms. Mooney. He saw, quote, revolutionary potential in African-American jockeys because they won. Fortune hoped that fans who came to admire Murphy and others might lose their prejudice. Miss Mooney, in a masterful bit of writing, holds on to the best part for as long as she can. Fortune went to see Murphy ride Salvatore and met him. Soon after, Murphy's fortunes began to sink. A few mistakes received varied interpretations. He was on the filly Ferenzi in her disastrous Mammoth handicap, 
a race that ended with the horse bolting toward the inner rail on a collision course and Murphy falling out of the saddle. He was judged by the public, no doubt victimized for his success. The champagne that flowed in celebration in the beginning of the book, at a celebratory clam bake during which Murphy was a welcome guest, was recast as Murphy's vice. The press turned on him. Their main message was shrill and constant. Murphy was a disgraceful, disgusting drunk. Quote, Murphy died in 1896, the same year the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson. Murphy had tiptoed through a minefield of de facto segregation, which now became de jour. Life became harder and harder for black jockeys, Ms. Mooney suggests, because, quote, they represented black people's demands for full citizenship in America. Black jockeys brought with them black fans, who celebrated and enjoyed themselves and broke the rules of coexistence, which required them to remain meek and out of the way. Racing is a naturally backward-looking sport because every thoroughbred traces its lineage to one of only three horses, the Darley Arabian, the Godolphin Arabian, and the Byerly Turk. These bloodlines are where the money is. The two minutes of hooves thundering over the dirt is exciting, but in some sense the sport is decided in the past, by the influences of horses long gone, brought together in the breeding shed and now piloted by small, hungry jockeys hoping to link their spot in the story. Pardon me, that's hoping to ink their spot in the story. Consistently left out of the story have been two of its most entertaining aspects, the black jockeys who ruled the track at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, and the utter madness and vanity that drove the big players. Miss Mooney's book does a great service in addressing them both. The black jockeys weren't so much misrepresented as they were ignored. This brief book is part of the Black Lives series from Yale University Press, which aims to tell the stories of, quote, notable and overlooked black figures who profoundly shaped world history. Isaac Murphy is deeply and impressively researched. Ms. Mooney is meticulous, never suggesting anything for which she has no evidence, and letting the sources tell the story. But the book never drags. Ms. Mooney pieces together a narrative with the arc so tight and clean that it's a wonder it actually happened. At the turning point, it's when it's clear that Murphy's fate is sealed, Isaac Murphy reads like well-constructed fiction. It has hooks and reads, pardon me, it reads, in other words, like a novel, and that is because the author brought not just rigor, but craft. And once again, the title of the book is Isaac Murphy, The Rise and Fall of a Black Jockey. And now back to TheRoot.com for a review of another book written by Angela Johnson, published on the 25th. We'll never need to explain what our kitchen is to another white person again. The new Oxford Dictionary of African American English will be edited by Henry, Henry Louise Gates, Jr. Your days of explaining what words like bussin' and grill mean to white people may be soon coming to an end, 
Instead, you can tell them to look it up in the Oxford Dictionary of African American English. You heard that right. The new dictionary, which is a partnership between the Oxford English Dictionary and Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research, will be made up entirely of words created by or reinvented by black folks. And you already know there are plenty to choose from. Researchers are pulling words from classic works of black literature, slave narratives, song lyrics, and even the latest rants on black Twitter. They plan to publish the first 1,000 definitions in March 2025. But some people can continue to send in suggestions for a new entries online long after the first edition goes out. Here's a sample of a few words you can expect to find. Grill. Noun. A removable or permanent dental overlay typically made of silver, gold, or another metal and often inset with gemstones, which is worn as jewelry. Kitchen. Noun. The hair at the nape of the neck, which is typically shorter, kinkier, and considered more difficult to style. Cakewalk. Noun. 1. A contest in which black people would perform a stylized walk in pairs, typically judged by a plantation owner. The winner would receive some type of cake. 2. Something that is considered easily done, as in, this job is a cakewalk. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., director of the Hutchins Center at Harvard, will serve as editor-in-chief of the three-year project. In a statement, he says the final product will acknowledge the contributions African Americans have made to shaping the English language we all speak. Every speaker of American English borrows heavily from words invented by African Americans, whether they know it or not. Words with African origins, such as goober, gumbo, and okra, survived the Middle Passage along with our African ancestors. And words that we take for granted today, such as cool and crib, hokum and dis, hip and hep, bad, meaning good, and dig, meaning to understand, these are just a tiny fraction of the words that have come into American English from African American speakers. Neologisms that emerged out of the black experience in this country over the last few hundred years, he said. According to Professor Gates, words from the new African American Dictionary will also be added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Turning now to the New York Times. This was posted earlier in May on the 2nd, written by Kayla Stewart. Where the milkshakes are served with a celebration of black culture. At Harlem Shake, which continues to expand, the fun retro vibes connect to a deeper diner history. On a corner in central Harlem, just blocks from the Apollo Theater and Marcus Garvey Park, stands Harlem Shake, a diner designed to look as though it's been there for decades. The walls are covered with Jet magazine covers and photographs. Some signed, of black American musicians and celebrities, Regina Hall, Diddy, Maya Angelou, Questlove. Its retro diner-style menus and swivel, barls, pardon me, swivel bar stools evoke nostalgia for an era of charm and upheaval in American culture. 
Rashida Purdy, a neighborhood resident of 14 years, finds comfort in how distinctly Harlem the restaurant is. The interior of it, the aesthetic of it, the music, that's the Harlem I know and fell in love with years ago. Harlem Shake reaches a milestone. This month, the black and woman-owned restaurant is celebrating its 10th anniversary, having served the black and Latino communities in the neighborhood with updated takes on burgers, fries, and milkshakes. The second location opened in Park Slope, Brooklyn, in 2021, serving guava frosés and chicken strips dressed in spankin' hot sauce. And a third Harlem Shake is set to open in Long Island City this summer. Harlem has a rich diner history that belongs to African American, pardon me, to Black Americans. It says, former neighborhood mainstays from the '60s, like Lewis's Family Restaurant and M&G Diner. Louise's Family Restaurant, I knew I was stumbling there, and M&G Diner were recognized for their soul food. Pan Pan, which stood at the corner of 135th Street and Lenox Avenue, was a beloved Black-owned restaurant that served locals for 30 years until it was destroyed in a fire in 2004. It was immortalized in a video for the song You Don't Know My Name. Miss Coxham regularly visited Pan Pan with her grandmother, who lived in Harlem's Riverton community. She went before and after school, describing it as a safe haven in her childhood, a feeling that she wanted to recreate with Harlem Shake. Miss Pasek and Miss Coxham are an unlikely pair. Miss Pasek is from Croatia, moved to New York in 2000. She ran a coffee shop and a restaurant in Washington Heights. After divorce, she wanted a job that would allow her more time with her children. When she met Miss Coxham, they bonded over their love of Harlem. Their efforts to serve and uplift the neighborhood go beyond the food and the space itself. Ms. Pasek estimates that of the 35 people who work at the Harlem location, nearly 80% are from a local zip code. The owners regularly partner with local organizations and schools and host an annual Miss or Mr. Harlem Shake competition, which is open to trans and cisgender contestants. And the winner is given $750 to donate to a Harlem nonprofit of choice. Ms. Pasek says, I'm so proud to have a place where everybody, people of all genders, races, and orientations, can come together and eat, rest, remove any worries, and just enjoy themselves. And I recall having read this one in previous weeks, so I edited parts of it as it went along. Next, also from the New York Times... This was posted May 2nd as well, written by Sarah Barr. For Audra McDonald, the work is the true joy. With Ohio State murders, the 10-time Tony nominee hopes people took away a better understanding of the destructive power of racism. Audra McDonald has been here before, and 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 before. The actress earned her 10th Acting Tony Award nomination on Tuesday for leading, pardon me, that's for Best Leading Actress in a Play 
for her role as the writer Suzanne Alexander in Adrian Kennedy's 1991 play Ohio State Murders, the 91-year-old Kennedy's Broadway debut. The feat ties her with Cheetah Rivera and Julie Harris as the most nominated individual performers in the 76-year history of the awards. It's an honor, said MacDonald, who has won six Tony Awards, the most of any performer. She went on, but the work is the true joy. MacDonald, 52, previously won four featured actress Tonys in the play and musical categories for her roles in Carousel, 94, Masterclass, 96, Ragtime, 98, and A Raisin in the Sun, 2004. She won leading actress Tonys for her performance as the strong-headed Bess in the musical The Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, and her turn as the famed jazz singer Billie Holiday in the play Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill in 2014. She is the only person to win in all four acting categories. In his review of Ohio State Murders, which he called a piercing production, the New York Times critic Jesse Green praised McDonald's performance as ripped from her gallery of harrowing women and noted that it builds to a shattering catharsis. In an interview during her lunch break from a workshop in Manhattan on Tuesday, MacDonald discussed her milestone achievement, why it still feels special to be recognized for this particular production, and what she hopes people took away from her performance. These are edited excerpts from the conversation, which I may further edit for length. This is your tenth nomination, and you've already secured the record for the winningest performer, is it still special? Answer, it's incredibly special. Being able to be a part of Adrian Kennedy, having her Broadway debut, and getting her work seen by a larger audience was something that was very important to me. Even if I hadn't gotten a nomination, I'd still feel very proud of the work. I was honored that she trusted our vision and what we wanted to do with the play. The older and younger versions of Suzanne Alexander are usually played by two different actors, but you played both. Why? Because Suzanne is going back in time to remember these things. I thought being able to actually step into those memories and feel them in her body would inform even more when she stepped back out of them to a narrative reflective place. So I asked Adrian for permission for that, and she said, sure, that's great, let's see what happens. What spoke to you about the show? How often do we have plays that really center a black woman's experience? This is a chance for the character Suzanne, and it's semi-autobiographical, so Adrienne, to an extent, to be able to speak her experience. Being able to play this incredibly brilliant, wounded, and in some ways, at the end of the play, triumphant woman was very appealing, even though it was very, very difficult and it was an indictment that needs to be delivered in terms of what systemic racism does to people and how it destroys. Your characters' babies are represented not with dolls, but as slips of pink fabric. Why? That was the brilliance of Kenny Leon, who is an incredible director. We knew that once you bring babies on stage, even if they're dolls, 
which was one thought at one point. It was going to be very difficult to set them aside for times when the focus isn't necessarily on them. We wanted to make sure the audience wasn't distracted by them. And what hope do you hope? Pardon me. What do you hope people took away from the show? I hope they had a broader understanding of the destructive power of racism. I also hope that people who are not black could see that we are not a monolith. This is a woman as a character who is not always represented on stage, and I wanted this very educated and smart and brilliant yet wounded woman out there telling her story and centering her story and demanding that it be heard. How does it feel to have been able to bring a lesser seen work to the stage? Plenty of people have known who Adrian Kennedy was for years, but there was a younger generation that was introduced to Adrian Kennedy with that production, and that makes me happy. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the Erickson Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.